0: sisters happy sunday welcome to the first sunday in lent kim folk, let us pray almighty god you are our guide and our destination lead us into right paths for the sake of your name and set our sights upon the right reward for the sake of our lives amen The temptation of Christ, this image, is one of my favorite readings from the Gospel of Matthew. It is intense. Jesus is uh, 30 years old. He's a 30-year-old man alone in the wilderness. He's tested, fined. He's got 40 days to discover who he is, his purpose, and how he is going to work. And then, just three short years later, the age of 33, he rides triumphant into Jerusalem. He destroys death. He defeats the most powerful empire the world has ever known. He ends death forever. The story of Jesus being tempted confirms for me something that I always kind of suspected was true. My suspicion has always been that the best and most rewarding things in life are Difficult, private, and profitless. And uh, difficult in that they take hard work, private, and that they're not things that are on display for all to see, and profitless, and that you can't store them up in a bank account. Unremunerative, my dad would say, extracurricular. There's a beautiful painting of this story. It's actually my favorite painting uh, by uh, uh, Russian painter uh, Ivan Kramsky. And he's a realist, so it's one of these turn of the century paintings that's meant to look almost like a photograph. Uh, The painting's called Christos Pustanye, which which just means Christ Tempted. His... uh, Image shows Jesus Christ sitting on a stone with his long hair unkempt and he his eyes are wide open but looking at the ground in front of his feet and you can see behind him the sort of morning light of dawn breaking over the desert his facial features are ragged and he looks starved it actually shows him as a man who hasn't eaten in forty days. And around him uh, are stones. The painting is huge. It's it's a life-size painting. But even as a huge painting, it's it's almost like diminished by the kind of torment that you can see in his face. And if you look carefully, you see those stones that are in front of him. They almost kind of look like loaves of bread. transform, and you stand there in front of this painting, and you're just waiting for the angels to finally appear. Why does he do this? Why struggle? Why do hard things instead of easy things? To what end does Jesus do this thing? I think the answer's got to be found in what the devil offers him in exchange, okay? The things that the devil offers Jesus are the same things that the devil offers all of us. Remember that this isn't a book about things that happened in the past. I know there's a lot of places out there, there's a lot of churches that either believe that this is stuff that happened in the past. We have to believe it like it's because it's a, it's a history book or, God forbid, a biology book or something. And then there's other people who say, no, this is just future. This is this is a magic book that you can open that will predict the future. This is a book about right now. This is a book that are these are things that are happening now every day. Every page of this book is a blueprint for the building that we're in called creation. So the deal that the devil is making with Jesus is the same one that he makes with all of us every day. Okay, well, he offers a starving man bread. And he offers to take Jesus up to the top of the temple where he can uh, throw himself off and be carried to the ground by angels. This is clearly an offer to allow Jesus to prove himself to all the people of Jerusalem, to the scribes and the Pharisees. All the important people at the temple will then have proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Okay? And then the third offer Earthly power, rulership over the nations of the world, bread, status, and power. Now, I like to put it mentally. Uh, I, ca- I call it the unholy trinity of security, celebrity, and authority. Security—that's right? just security—is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are safe. Your physical body's taken care of. You don't got to worry about that. Celebrity, next, is to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that everybody likes you. (laughs) People look up to you, people respect you. And then authority, that's to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are in control. You're in charge. Security, celebrity, and authority. We're gonna be tempted by these things, and we can say yes uh, to them, or we can wait for angels. Now, I know uh, as a fact, it doesn't matter how many Sundays I climb up into a pulpit, I've been doing this for a little bit now. It doesn't remind myself and read the Bible with you. Security, any security I find is temporary. Uh, any celebrity is always going to be illusory or passing. And the authority that I may have is a weak joke compared to the authority that God has over my life. I can remind myself of that but it doesn't matter because basically as soon as I walk out the doors of this church uh, I want to know how much money's in my bank account I want to know that the people liked my sermon and I want to know that I'm in control as I'm driving my truck home okay Security, celebrity, and authority. Okay, well, what's so wrong with the first one? What's wrong with wanting to be secure? For the most part, I think nothing at all. That's a perfectly natural desire. It's just that the problem is that people tend to put their trust and hope, they're pursuing security, they put their trust and hope in things that actually make them less secure. That's a fact. I'll give you a simple one. We can look at, um, look at, that, look at handguns, for example. Handguns, uh, handguns are a plague in this country. It's the leading cause of gun deaths. Um, and before I get up here and make a hypocrite out of myself, I'll tell you right now, I own handguns. Uh, going to the range, uh, shooting handguns is a way that I, it's a sport for me, it's a hobby. I've done it since I was a Boy Scout. Okay. But I don't own handguns to keep me safe. They are a hobby. I know the facts are this. These are the facts. The fact is if you have a gun in your house, the risk of you dying from homicide is two times higher than it was before you had that gun in your house. Your risk of dying from suicide is four times higher. And your risk of death from an accidental gunshot injury is five times higher. And that last one should seem pretty obvious, because if you don't have a gun, you're probably not going to die from accidentally shooting yourself with it. Okay. And this is, this is serious stuff, that, because the, if the handgun is for security, okay, that means that people are pursuing this thing, and they're bringing this plague into their own house, and it is serious. It's so serious. We're in the middle of of an absolute epidemic of child suicide in this country. Those two words should never go together, ever. And the rate of teen suicide is skyrocketing. And three quarters, three quarters of all of the guns used in, in teen suicides were guns from that kid's own house. How many of the parents that purchased the guns said, I, I did it to keep us safe? My God, what a cruel joke. These aren't opinions. This isn't my politics. These are facts. Remember, I'm a guy who owns and shoots guns. Why do I? Okay, well, alright, my guns? are disassembled, put into a bag, all the pieces and parts are mixed together, there's no ammunition in my house. All right? And that's the way it's going to stay. But for so many people, they are keeping this thing that they think is going to keep them safe, and it's just not. It's not going to keep them safe. All right. We look at the statistics and we think, well, then what do I do? I want to prevent injury and death. I want to keep my family safe. There's a lot of people over here telling me that if I just give them $600 for this 9mm handgun, then all my security issues are going to be taken care of. I'm up here telling you that they won't. Well, what do you do? Okay? What keeps us safe? Uh, For some people, this is at the absolute center of their identity. This is the thing that they think about more than anything else. Uh, I used to work at a church... uh, it was, a, it, was a big, it was a big fancy church. And uh, the point of the story is they had to get new... The, the first floor of the church needed all new windows. They didn't have stained glass windows. It was regular windows. It was time to update the windows. The church was in a downtown area and they were <laughs> terrified of their neighbors, if you know what I mean. This was not a church that was known for being super friendly and hospitable to people who slept on the street. Uh... They had a big meeting about the windows. I was at the meeting. And they said, we gotta get new windows put in, but we gotta be careful. We gotta think about security, safety, right? We gotta be safe together. Um, So we should, we're gonna get frosted glass windows. I've told some of you this story before. They said, we gotta get windows that let light in, but that you can't see through. Right, because you get the frosted glass, um, that way thieves can't look in from outside. And see all of our valuable tapestries and be tempted to break in and steal them. Okay? And we should get some big heavy curtains too. And I said, that's the opposite of what you should do. You shouldn't do, you're crazy, don't, um, this was before I knew how to talk to churches. I said, don't do that, you should get clear, you should get clear glass windows and, and leave them kind of open and, and well lit. And they said, "Look at this kid." <laughs> they didn't listen to me. I actually went so far as to go and talk to a police lieutenant in our uh, town because I was really kind of concerned about this. And I said to this police lieutenant, um, "They want to put frosted glass windows in the entire first floor of the church." And the police lieutenant said, "You got to tell them not to do that." And I said, "I tried." And um, they, they, they didn't. They went with the uh, frosted glass windows. Now, see, this is, this is what thieves want, because thieves, they want... The, the most important thing to a thief is that when they're inside the building, nobody can see them from outside the building. They want to be hidden in the building while they're doing their crime and <laughs> cat burgling. Uh, they don't want anybody to know that they're there. Um... Because if somebody sees them from outside the building with their flashlight, they're going to call the cops. Uh, so double bonus for them if you've got big thick blackout curtains over your windows. But if you have clear glass windows with a clear view to the streets, they, uh, anybody can see them. So they're going to go to the next church, the one with the frosted glass windows. But these, the problem was that the people in the church were good people. They were honest people. And they were unaccustomed to thinking like cat burglars and thieves. And so they got frosted glass windows. They got burgled. They didn't steal a tapestry, thank God. It was a laptop. Who would have thought? All right, security, safety. We get get misled, we get tempted by the devil into thinking that we can can somehow make ourselves perfectly safe. So we, we darken the windows of our home. Uh, we, uh, we buy a gun. That's the sort of thing the devil wants us to do. And that had to be front and center for Jesus. Safety. He's starving to death. Bread the devil offers. The certainty of living for another day. And Jesus says that certainty belongs only to God. So... What do you do if you want to be safe? Um, Exercise more and eat right. I'm your pastor. I know what actually kills you. Um, It's heart disease and stuff like that. Take care of yourselves. I love you. That's not in the sermon. I just, I like you guys. I'll keep you around. Then he offers him old scratch uh, celebrity. Offers to take him up to the top of the temple where everyone can see him. And Jesus is going to throw himself off and get flown down by angels. Uh, and he's not going to have to spend three years doing science and wonders. He's instantly going to be, everyone's going to see how great he is. And uh, it's like the devil comes before him and says, bow before me and I will make you an Instagram influencer. Uh, everyone will love your Facebook posts. They're going to make you the king of Facebook. <laughs> do, you, do you relish other people's opinions of you? you think about that? It's hard not to. I do. Um. I try to limit the list of individuals whose um, opinions I relish or really allowed to bother me. Um, I once knew a guy, and you can change that list too, because I once really respected a guy uh, who I thought uh, was going to teach me a lot of cool stuff and then I watched him try to light a bonfire with gasoline um, Then he blew himself up. Uh, So I changed my opinion of him. You can do that as well. But don't let the world be the one who you uh, relish their celebrity. Does Jesus care what the people in the temple think about him? The sinister thing about celebrity is that it convinces you to value everyone's opinion of you equally. And that's nonsense and gobbledygook. If you care what somebody who blows themselves up with gasoline thinks about you, you have your priorities mixed up. Jesus is offered celebrity, and he says he doesn't want to test God. And finally, the devil offers him earthly authority. The devil says, I'll make you president, Jesus. I'll give you all of these kingdoms. How many of us have thought, you know, if I, if I was in charge, they gave me a shot at running things, I'd put it to right. Or you think, come back to the example of winning the lottery. I know, Pastor, you told me that the worst thing that can ever happen to a person is to hit it big in the lottery. Statistically speaking, they all come to regret it. But not me. I'd do it right. <laughs> well, all right. Authority is a funny thing. The people who wield authority best, who really do it right, are the people who know how to give it away, how to delegate it to others. God delegates authority to Jesus Christ, to the disciples, to these people, to prophets and healers, to go out into the world to do what's right. Jesus knows also that the devil doesn't really have any authority to give him. He knows what so many of us forget in this country, that the government, the powers and principalities of humankind don't really have any real authority. It's illusory. It's, a, it's, a, it's always illusory. We've read history books. How does, how does Shelley's Ozymandias end? Right, the story of all the greatest empires in the world. A great and massive statue crumbling in a barren and empty desert marked with the inscription, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. It's a joke, it's a joke. Look on my works, there's nothing. There's nothing there, it's just dust. And such has been the ultimate result of every single empire that has ever arisen on this earth placed its trust in itself. We wield no real authority in this place. We're stewards. We're sent by God to labor at a vineyard that we don't own. Uh, And and there's a little humor here too, because offering Jesus Christ the authority of the governments of the world is a little bit like offering your landlord a chance to sleep on your couch. Jesus is already the ruler. It's like offering the ocean a cup of water. It's like offering the sun a lit candle. But still, it's an authority that we like to idolize, and on occasion, even worship. So security, celebrity, and authority. The three temptations offered to the Lord, and each of them are rebuked. And instead, the Lord chooses to do the hard thing. To do the hard thing. And what happens? What does God tell us will happen? Angels appear. That's far better than anything that the devil could have offered him. So that's why I suspect that what's best in life is to do the challenging thing, the hard thing. The patient thing, the thing that perhaps today offers no material rewards, is an aside hustle. It doesn't pay money. It doesn't return on dividends. It's a hard thing that takes faith. And then wait for the angels. The things in our life that force us to risk our security, our celebrity, and our authority. Difficult. Most of them are intensely private and entirely without monetary reward. Best things in life ask us to sacrifice without the certitude of reward, to love without the certitude of reciprocation, and to obey God without the expectation of authority. And this is what's meant by dying to oneself, by going into your closet to pray, and by storing up treasure in heaven instead of on earth. That's hard practice. I wouldn't preach this if it wasn't Lent. But it takes practice. That's why we have these gatherings every Sunday morning. It takes practice. Remember, folks, this isn't a sprint. We're in this thing for a marathon. And we won't always get it right. That's why we have communion and confession. But in Lent, we have these 40 days. We have this time to practice and try. And when tempted, remember this and take this with you. Remember that there are angels waiting at the end. There are angels waiting at the end. And just keep your hand on the plow. And let's look forward together to Easter. Amen.